Hi, it's June Sarpong here. You're listening to the podcast version of Project Reset brought to you by Mission Winnow. For future episodes, either subscribe with your usual podcast provider or visit missionwinnow.com. In a few months, the world has rapidly changed. And we have an opportunity to use this moment to reimagine the world we live in forever. Powering transformation through bold thinking, big ideas, and brave action. This is Project Reset. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Project Reset series brought to you by Mission Winnow. I'm June Sarpong and today's episode is called Unsocial Media. I'm excited to be joined by three leaders in the space and we'll be discussing how we are impacted by social media, how we are using it during this crisis and where we move things forward to. So I am joined by Chidera Ugera, who is aka Slumflower, a Nigerian British writer, fashion blogger, who's known for her book, which is probably the book of COVID, What a Time to Be Alone. We're also joined by Julian Wheatland, who was formerly the chairman of SCL Group and the COO and CFO of Cambridge Analytica. And last but by no means least, we have Bruce Daisley, a best-selling author and technology leader from the UK. He was formerly EMEA Vice President for Twitter, having previously run YouTube UK at Google. He also worked at EMAP Bauer and Capital Radio. Uh, so we're going to start the conversation looking at fake news and the war on hateful content. A lot has been happening over the last few months. Of course, we look at what's happening in terms of the COVID and all the conspiracies around that. We are looking at all the news in terms of fake news, even being told what works against COVID and what doesn't, and whether or not this started as a way of reducing uh, the global population. Some of this stuff, sadly, is getting through. And I think we have to talk about how we move the conversation to a point of actually finding real solutions as opposed to being centered anywhere near some of the conspiracies that we're seeing. So I'm going to start with you first, Chidera. What do you think the responsibility of platforms are to actually police and regulate some of the content that is on there? And actually, who is the arbiter of free speech? Well, it's difficult to answer because these platforms initially were created for us to socialise, share images, share our thoughts. I don't think anybody who created these platforms thought we're going to create a hub where we can churn out media, filter through some fake news, mix it up and create a society where we're all divided by our opinions, our fears. And it's hard to be optimistic knowing, especially as a black person, yeah. knowing that these platforms aren't built for people like myself. The algorithm isn't just this neutral um, entity. The person that's telling it what to do has its own bias and that bias is often never in my favour. What protection measures do you think should be in place? Social media can't be the only place where we 
implement these protective measures, we also have to look at the media. Media plays a very fascinating role in kind of like stirring the pot a little bit and allowing the outrage to manifest and become clicks and views. And so when you now meet media and social media, you get this really dangerous, explosive combination and yeah. social media platforms and media outlets have got to work hand in hand to create some sort of set of ethics and go over what morals mean because it's hard when the people who get to decide and determine what morals are also are the group of people who hold the most systemic power. Yeah. Let me come to you next, Julian. Obviously, um, if I pose the question to you in your role at Cambridge Analytica, some have accused you as perhaps exploiting some of the things that are possible on social media um, in terms of disinformation. Having seen perhaps some of the loopholes on these platforms, what do you think should be done to close that gap? In reference to disinformation, I don't think that Cambridge Analytica ever was involved in disinformation. Okay. And that's not a legal disclaimer, but it actually goes back to <clears throat> what was being said a moment ago, is that people like to promulgate the things that they want to believe in you rather mm. than things that, uh, rather than facts. And that's a root of a lot of fake news. You know, there was a point at which I had to get off all of social media just because of all of the, the hate that was being directed on a completely boundless basis. But Cambridge Analytica made mistakes. It was what it was. And, and I don't yeah. want to spend a lot of time going on about that. But, but um, when social media was, was started, it was what, what unites us defines us. And now right. it's almost morphed into something which is what divides us defines us. Correct. You know, it's been an element in creating a hugely polarized society, both on social media and off social media. Uh, and it's pervasive across all branches of media, both in the print media and the, t and the TV media. It's partly driven on social media by the algorithms where the, the, the social media companies want to keep pinging you. They want to keep showing you things which will either agree with you or shock you. Um, but also it's, you know, off social media, you know, the TV companies in America are almost campaigning organizations of one side of politics or the other. So it's really quite prevalent. The question you ask is, what do I think should be done? I think it's mm. hugely difficult. You know, Twitter started putting labels on some of Donald Trump's uh, tweets. Are we appointing Twitter, are we appointing Facebook to be the arbiters or the filters of what's news and what isn't news? We start to move into an area where we're talking really about censorship. And, and whilst I abhor a lot of what is said, isn't there something about democracy where, where, where we should stand up and defend people's right to say it? So I think this is a hugely complicated question. And sadly, I feel like the solution is likely to, to need to end up being greater regulation. Social media is not optional. And when people say, well, you don't have to be on Facebook, you don't have to be on Twitter, you know, in a large, large part of society, not being on Facebook is equivalent to tantamount to social exclusion. And so we need to view it as being almost an, a necessary social service, a little bit like the water company and the electricity company, recognize that it's a utility and regulate it as such. Um, and then at least we have some input of, of elected representatives or elected representation that is, uh, is going to control if there is any censorship that, uh, uh, that needs to go on. Bruce, I'll pose the question to you as somebody who did work for one of these platforms up until six months ago. Do you think they need to be policed more? But the danger, of course, of simple answers is that they often don't necessarily capture the nuance of what's going on. 
But I do believe that most people who work in social media would say that some degree of regulation is probably inevitable and probably a good thing. What Twitter has tried to do is, in recognition of the fact that this is so complex, it's tried to do a lot of its working out in public. So Jack Dorsey, he, he does a lot of interviews. You'll find, if you search his name, that very often he's on media publications. He goes and addresses both the houses of the, the U.S. Um, Senate and the House of Representatives. He tries to get out there and articulate what they're doing. Why? Partly to articulate how complex this is. And the second part, to try and exhibit the, the way that these decisions are being made. So it's immensely difficult. Witness, we're in a month, a year where regulators have got involved in trying to be the arbiters of what a generation of teenagers got in their exams. And we've seen a catastrophic, a calamitous result. And I think that should give us all a cautionary note about the danger of algorithms and the danger of regulation being seen as a simple silver bullet. Should there be a way that we listen to what the public are saying because the public themselves are actually concerned about the data and the way some of the platforms, including the one that you used to work for, use our data. And actually, if that is legislated, will that change the way that we actually interact with some of these platforms? The issues that affect Facebook, for example, are very different from the issues that affect Twitter. I mean, specifically on Twitter, a lot of people tweet anonymously. What you might say then as a solution for that is I think people are talking about maybe these, there's a different filter where people can verify their identities on Twitter. And maybe those people, that even though they're tweeting anonymously, they might be allowed to um, be, be more viewed, more visible to, to other people. Now, the issues you're raising about Facebook Yes, very evidently, uh, the, the problems there are about data, about how much they're sharing, about how much the, the app knows about you. So I think it's just a good reminder, really, that I don't think necessarily there's going to be a one-size-fits-all. We know that because of COVID, the data suggests that actually all of the, half of the people that are on social media are using it more, particularly during this time. So doesn't this make us even more vulnerable to some of the issues around privacy and, again, some of the way that our data is used. For me, I would really welcome the platforms being far more accountable in terms of telling people how many agents they have, checking the, the safety of various things. How many, pe how many people does Facebook have in the UK? How many people does Twitter have in Germany, in France? And I think if voters, I think if politicians knew where the uh, the regulation was taking place, where the, the, the moderation was taking place, it would enable them to take uh, better decisions and make better decisions. To, to, to give you an illustration, quite often, if you've got an issue with a premiership footballer uh, finding that they're being exposed to racist language in one country, well, often the complexity, the nuance of the language that's being expressed would be pretty opaque to someone in... Uh, Central Europe judging that, and it wouldn't necessarily look like something you needed to take action on. And I think that local context is really important. But until these platforms report how many people they've got in each country, it's very difficult for politicians to say, okay, that seems about the right number. So, Julian, we know that when the tech community and coders decided that they were going to take on the banks and perhaps take out the middleman 
blockchain was invented. Is there a tech solution for this too? What could that be, in your opinion? I think there probably are tech solutions、uh, to this, but again, you know, w- w- when you're filtering information,、um, it, you're still reliant on. People's interpretation of、mm. what's true and what isn't true. I could say one thing, and you know, two of you could disagree with me, and one of you agree with me. It's a very subjective thing, and we don't have a tech solution for analysing that subjective interpretation.、Now、I think you know, with artif- even with our full artificial intelligence、um, and data analytics, we're a long, long way away from uh, uh, from getting that. How do you think we get to a place? Because You know, I'm fascinated in in how we get to a place where we can have a, a civilized discourse, and then actually, even if you disagree, there's not that we're saying you need to agree, but how do we respectfully disagree? Because that seems to be the thing that is completely missing on social media. If I was to take The, the the obscure、uh, parallel of French radio. I mean, French radio have promoted and protected French music by insisting that there's a certain amount of content on on there, quite a high proportion of content, which is in the French language.、Mm. Now, I do wonder that within the、um, the algorithms of the social media companies, where they continually feed you things which support what you already believe, you know, an obligation to be exposed to a certain a certain quantity of contrary views wouldn't be really healthy for expanding the mind and increasing discourse. Yeah, just it's fascinating because that was one of the hypotheses that we actually tested. So、um, what we started to do at Twitter was we started to show in people's timelines content from people that was maybe either in their broader, their wider social circle that disagreed or、mm-hmm. gave a plurality of different opinions, and we started to try to give a slightly more diverse perspective. And、um, to to maybe to Julian's sort of hunch, it was one of the most unpopular things we ever did. And、wow. I think it, it just gives you an illustration, really, that a lot of us feel that everyone else should get a diversity of. We're comfortable in our echo chambers. But in us, <laughs> but in us, we're very comfortable in curating it ourselves. So we got such a negative response, and influential voices would say, "What the heck is Twitter doing? I don't need to hear the other other side." I'm very sure that I'm in the right here, and so we, we had to abandon it. So, absolutely, I think it's an illustration of how sometimes you can optimize for these things. You can try and bring in a bit of reason, understanding the other side's perspective, and it's never quite as easy as you would hope. Shadara, do you think that because of all that we're experiencing during this COVID crisis, and we are experiencing this collective trauma, even if it's different in terms of how we're experiencing it, we are all impacted by it. Don't you think that that's also allowing us to be able to understand the other better, and actually, perhaps post COVID, the way we interact with social media might change because of it. I'm noticing that right now the thing, the the in thing is wholesome content. Yeah. Because there's a lot more people using these platforms, you see a lot more things get a lot more retweets and a lot more likes, a lot more engagement. 
So people are loving the more simple things now. Like you could see someone make a tweet like, my dad always wears this silly hat to work and it's yeah. so innocent and cute. And he doesn't even and know And the, the way we're celebrating frontline workers, clap yes. for the NHS, all of that is being completely amplified by social media. The, in, in a way that without it, we wouldn't have that same level of impact, I would have thought. It's also allowing us to learn new ways of using language. Yeah. Um, it's pulling us into social justice, whether we are reading the books or not. If you're not reading yeah. the books, you're reading the tweets, you're seeing you're reading it on your tweets timeline. And the posts, and yeah. that's definitely closer <laughs> than nothing, because if we were in the 90s right now and we didn't have social media, there wouldn't be as much of an immediate social pressure to clue yourself up on yeah. what certain words mean or what yeah. the world really looks like and what that looks means for certain people. How do you balance your career, because so much of your career is on social media and is about connecting with your followers, versus you as a consumer and, and an individual? How do you find that balance? So if you come off social media, in a way, you're kind of interrupting the work mm -hmm. that you do. It's very hard because once you reach a certain number of followers, let's say you hit the 10K followers threshold, once you're there, it's almost like you're no longer a person. You're now just an account and people mm. can just throw their outrage at you. People can genuinely choose to misunderstand you and you can't tell if it's banter or if they're being serious. And yeah. this happens to me a lot where every single thing I tweet or every single caption I post or every single story I upload, I have to prepare to be misunderstood. Mm. And that's very exhausting. If people don't feel like they can relate to you or your lifestyle or your state of mind, then they're going to attack it. Mm -hmm. And it can be quite hard because you can't tell the difference often between critique and someone just projecting. Uh -huh. But a lot of times what's difficult about critique is the people who often are put in a position of receiving the most critique are black women. And right. It's a difficult conversation to have about how we handle black you're dealing with racism and misogyny and social media yeah racism yeah. and misogyny and that meeting social media is very dangerous because you know we don't have any systems in place that are going to filter through these new words people are using and filter through language trends like the same way the algorithm knows what kind of antibacterial flavor i'm gonna like from just hearing me talk to someone is the same way I wish the algorithm would somehow be committed to learning the vocab that we use so that it knows when someone is being attacked unfairly. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is possible. Like if we can- Well, we know we it can, is. Yeah. Yeah, if well, we can we travel to Mars and the moon and build rockets, of course we can create technology that will have the intention of creating social justice. I think mm. there is repair, there is still, it's yeah. still redeemable, but it's a lot of work and it's urgent. And I, I guess the urgency paired with how much work there is to do just makes people feel very helpless. Do you think it is even possible to stop perpetuating echo chambers? Because your suggestion was perhaps the idea of feeding us with polarizing content but what bruce has shown us is that when it's done we don't want it and actually we don't engage with that content so is it actually possible to even to even do it may be i'm, I'm sure it's not easy um i mean chidera made the point that the thing about the thing that distinguishes social media is we choose what we look at the other thing that distinguishes social media is that it tends to be dominated by the extreme Yes. It's, it's the loudest voice, 
which, uh, which, which becomes dominant. So we have to experiment with things, but maybe actually what we should do is we should limit everybody's ability, limit the amount of bandwidth on social media individuals can take up. Or maybe we should force other pe everybody to contribute a certain amount in order to be able to, uh, uh, to receive a certain amount. And maybe that would balance out the, um, uh, the discussion a little bit. Because the one thing I do think is the extremist debate that we see on social media is not the same debate that we experience in life. So there's a yeah. good news element to that, which is it hasn't turned us into rabid arguers in yeah. our everyday life. Not, not yet. yet. <laughs> But, but but equally, I think that if if somehow we could we could get the discussion and get the uh, get the contribution to be more inclusive, that would go some way to it. Yeah, I think you know, right now, telling any child, teenager that they need to limit their bandwidth on TikTok might be uh, a fascinating challenge. I'd love to see. <laughs> Look, for me, all roads lead to empathy. One of the things that, in hindsight, we struggle with through screens is we struggle to empathize. Mm. It actually is a really interesting lens to look at this remote working experience that yeah. we've got. Because if companies increasingly become sort of this distributed farm of workers opening their laptops in the morning, if there's an empathy gap among colleagues, I wonder if that's going to be one of the things we look at and, and worry about in the next five years. I wonder, do you think the fact that we were all at home or not in the workplace in the same way, uh, we all had more time on our hands than usually, and so therefore we didn't have our usual distractions, and we're able to see this horrific killing in the same way on our screens? and therefore not able to turn away from it, which is, I think, in part why you have this empathy, this outpouring, not just from those who experience systemic racism, but actually those with privilege and agency in our society. And I wonder if we are looking at the positive aspects of social media, that that is really why this outpouring was as global as it was because we all had a way of interacting with this content, this content probably sent to us by people that we love and trust and care about, or at least admire and listen to, which meant that we had to engage with it in a completely different way than even if it was just on a television screen. Well, I, th I think yes and so would be my answer. I think one of the wonderful benefits of social media is that the agenda is no longer determined by an Oxbridge educated person who's, who's picking what's on the news agenda. And so what we've seen as a consequence is that we've actually been able to shine a spotlight on, on people and, and hand them a microphone. To my mind, it's absolutely wondrous that we're able to see that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the murder of Breonna uh, Taylor, the, the, the young woman in Kentucky, has been yeah. kept in the news mm -hmm. because not because of any broadcasters, not because of any newspapers, but because the crowd, the, the people, the distributed Are demanding holders, Absolutely. And every day they're bringing it back up. And whether you look, it's two years now of Greta Thunberg's school strikes. And it's almost certain that had we seen that played out through a traditional media, it might have just about got onto the final item of news items around the world, but we would never have seen this mass movement. And so I, I can't help but be optimistic that 
by distributing the source and the, the focal point of attention, we're actually seeing figures who uh, inspire us with their vision and, and shine a spotlight on injustice, but also give us ho- reason to hope. And uh, I, I tend to err on the side that optimistically, the, these things will be a force for good rather than for ill. So, Chidera, if I bring you into the conversation, you've already spoken about some of the things that you've experienced on social media as a black woman, um, as a person from an underrepresented group that speaks truth to power daily, constantly. What does Black Lives Matter mean to you? Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter. Like, it means my life matters unconditionally. Um, I think often when people say Black Lives Matter, it's still conditional. What we need to all keep in mind is that until Black Lives completely matter, and until we see how much Black Lives Matter, then no other lives are going to matter and no other lives are going to be safe. Because the reality is, once the most marginalised members of society receive full safety and full welcoming into society, everybody else who's higher up on the privilege ladder will automatically live a much more convenient and safer life. But what's difficult about mentioning that in conversations to Mm. do with social justice Mm. is that often people who belong to marginalized groups like myself, we feel like we have to encourage white people to understand that, hey, you can benefit too from our justice and really you shouldn't have to benefit from someone else's justice justice to see why you need to play a role in balancing out the social dynamic. Can we talk about the examples of where it has been effective? Because there are so many where actually people, people power, have used social media to speak truth to power and actually hold our leaders to account. Are there examples that you think, wow, I'm, I'm so proud to have seen that or to have even been part of that? Yes, Monroe Bergdorf. She's an incredible yes. example. Who She's we both adore. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely love her. She's a black trans woman. Yeah. And she was one of the first few people in the UK, especially on a massive me- a televised media platform, to call out racism for what it is mm. with her stats, with confidence. She really held herself well. Not only that, but the way that she was involved in a L'Oreal campaign mm. and she was taken out of that campaign for speaking up. And then in June, when all the blackout squares were happening on Instagram, L'Oreal made a post with a black square saying, speaking up is worth it. And everyone was like, no. And this is where I really saw community on social media in a positive way come into full effect where I've never seen like a comment section just full of angry blue ticks. All the blue ticks were like, no, L'Oreal, you're not gonna do this because when a black woman spoke out, you removed her from the campaign and you put her in a brutal firing line. And now, long story short, Monroe has been employed by L'Oreal to be on the diversity board on a very lovely, handsome salary. And I'm like, yeah, that's how you do it. Because she was always right. And this is the thing where black women often have to wait a very, 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 very long time to finally be told you were right. Thankfully, Monroe was told she was right while she's still alive. But most black women, you only celebrate them after they've gone or after you finally realize, oh, she was right. But that's after she's gone through all the media backfire, people canceling. So I think that there is still room for 
people to choose to listen and choose to put their money where their mouth is. And it's a difficult one because like with L'Oreal doing the right thing and mm. not just, you know, paying Monroe off of a compensation fee, but actually being like, no, not only are we going to pay you, we're going to have you tell us what to do and help us lead the change. And that more of that can be done. I would love to see that. So Julian, if I come to you, I'd love us to talk through some of the data. In the three days after George Floyd died in police custody, hashtag Black Lives Matter was tweeted uh, on average 8.8 million times uh, a day. Um, and then the following two weeks after the event, on average nearly 3.7 million times a day. And the New York Times are saying that perhaps it's the largest movement in US history. And if you look at the conversations that are now being had around police brutality and institutionalized racism, uh, perhaps some of the changes that may come uh, in legislation as a result of it. If you look at the impact of this versus even the civil rights movement of the 60s, it seems that this has even spread further and faster. Do you think it is because of social media that 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 it's had the impact that it's had? I mean, there is no doubt that it would never have exploded in the way it exploded without social media. I mean, it, it, it took over social media and it spread like wildfire. We're talking about something which happened in an American city and it went international. Um, if it hadn't happened in COVID, I think it wouldn't have been the same mm. as well. The point that you were making earlier, okay. not so much that people's ability to be able to turn away from it, but it's the fact that within COVID, there was nothing to distract from it. And so people weren't going about their normal daily lives. They weren't forced to go and catch the bus, get to work and you know, operate the till or whatever, whatever it was. And so it, it remained on people's lives, uh, on people's minds in a much stronger way than it would have done had life been carrying on normally. Yes. Pe people were shocked yeah. by it. I mean, it was very shocking footage. It was appallingly shocking footage. And it was, it was an extreme example. I know there have been others, but it was an extreme example. And then there was a, the, the part played outside of social media by our political leaders. I mean, one in particular, it was almost astounding, his ability to find himself on the wrong side of, of, of history. Um, and, and that in itself created a, a, a social media, um, a viral social media and footage of that behavior, which was almost as shocking as the original event. And all of these things came together and, and the particularly interesting thing about this was it jumped the divide. So we talked about the fact that, uh, uh, that, that social media is, is very divided, but this was powerful enough to jump the divide. And yes, yes of course, there were some people still denying that there was a, an issue, but, mm. but for the most part, it became, it became um, uh, omnipresent. And, um, uh, and that was really, uh, really quite striking. And frankly, very exciting, but uh, in terms of the powerful good that social media brings. I'd like to talk more about, in terms of what you know now, how could that same technology be used for other purposes, for, for perhaps around bringing people together? 
and actually moving some question. of these social justice movements. What a great question. So to bring back that everything, to bring together everything that we just spoke about, hmm. um, and, and far be it from me, you know, a, a privileged, entitled white person to be able to speak <laughs> and, and try and understand, you know. Well, we the, won't the, hold the, it the, against you. <laughs> but but, but it, it seems to me that a large part, the, 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 the bulk of the issues around racism are, racism are about lack of understanding. Hmm. And there is huge potential to be able to use the type of technology and techniques that Cambridge Analytica used to educate, frankly, both sides, um, to see the world through other people's eyes and to understand what it's like to be a black person working yeah. into walking into a pub that's full of white people. Yeah. Um, and and that 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 type of directing this type the, the type of technology that was used by SCL originally and then mm. Cambridge Analytica to addressing social issues to my mind is probably uh, the most exciting exciting potential use of it. I'm going to bring you in, Bruce. Is that now the responsibility of platforms like Twitter and Facebook to actually make it part of their active duty? to look at bringing us together. And, and, and if we see the success of a Black Lives Matter movement, in a way you can build more trust with communities when you are seen as a force for good, as, a, as opposed to a force for division. Well, certainly I think the potential for the platforms to be used in that way would be helpful. I would question whether that should be the role of the platforms. To give you an illustration, they're obviously immensely difficult and complex issues that often have a, a religious connotation around the world and obviously th there are going to be different religions different states who might want platforms to have different opinions if that was the case and i think it, it puts a platform in a di very difficult position if it's trying to arbitrate against those things but you know i'm i'm inspired by what julian says that it's an illustration that these platforms can be used by uh, people for good and for bringing people together even if i'm quizzical whether it should be the platforms themselves doing that. Okay. But somebody should be. Maybe that's your next challenge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but like, just give you an obvious one and, and one that I, I would not want to editorialise on, but you can imagine that um, quite often within social media companies, there's a very strong movement towards and support for the pride movement. And very strongly, you know, I, I support that myself. If you go to Saudi, if you go to other countries, they would have a different perspective on that. Right. And of course, you know, we, we might take a moral tone on it. Their religion might dictate that they take a different tone. And unpicking that and solving that problem is far more complex than I could uh, hope to, to wade in and, and have an opinion on here. So how do we then reconcile if profit is the thing that's driving all of these companies, then surely the decisions aren't necessarily about what's best for people or for their users. The decision is about what's best for the bottom line. How do we move beyond that, do you think? Well, I think this is where a degree of transparency is the most important thing. I think if people knew that regulating YouTube, there was, there was 10 people in UK, the UK or whatever the number is, then it would obviously have a very material impact on the debate that we had. And, and people would say, okay, now I know that it's that few people, I now believe that we should be doing something more. So I think a, a degree of transparency and accountability is, is probably the first step that, you know, there might be small countries who say, 
people in Ireland might say, wow, I, I was astonished that so few people were, were actually dedicating themselves to sustaining the quality of conversation on these platforms. So to my mind, it's about baby steps. It's about trying to have a degree of transparency. This probably in the same way that we have an ombudsman in most areas, probably the scope to have an ombudsman that doesn't necessarily want to intrude in setting a new algorithm, but more holding the platforms to account for the decisions that they're making. I'll come back to you, uh, Julian. Um, do you think that we are a product of social media or is social media a product of us or a combination? The obvious answer has to be a combination, doesn't it? It isn't a one-way street in either direction. Um, uh, we beget social media and social media is now paying back into society and, and, and delivering for us. And both are evolving um, uh, our interactions with social media during the COVID crisis moved on a pace because the intensity of them uh, uh, mm. increased so much. And I think that, you know, coming out the other side, it won't be the same, but nor do I think it will be the same in two years' time. Uh, social media is... I actually would start to stop making the distinction between social media and normal life. It's mm. intertwined in our lives now and it's part and parcel of it. Bruce... Are we a product of social media or is social media a product of us or combination? And what would you like to see it evolve into? What should our new normal be in terms of how we interact with social media? When we find ourselves looking into society and seeing the, the bits that we don't like, I think that's not necessarily a creation of social media. It's the fact that for the first time we're able to see transparency transparently what people were saying when we weren't in the room before. Mm. So I think more than anything, social media starts off as a mirror. But I do strongly believe that there is scope for us to, to enhance the quality of conversation. And that's on all of us. You know, the, the notion that we can necessarily set rules or regulate that people will behave in a better way probably a degree too optimistic but there was some great work done in gaming communities now in gaming communities often to stereotype you'd find a young male of a certain age and forgive the stereotype but what you'd find as a result of that that one of the most common derogatory terms was they used the word gay in mm -hmm. fact um, what you discovered was that when the people who used the word gay when they lost a game and they used the word gay when when you told those people that they they were the trolls they were initially astonished because they believed that the trolls were the other people, that, that, that it wasn't them. And it's just a good reminder that the way that, that we view things subjectively isn't always the objective truth. And so what was discovered with gaming communities is when the, the, those people were cautioned and told that they were behaving in a bad way, the, the number of people who actually re-offended was astonishingly low. People, wow. when they're just given a little nudge and told they are the problem, are horrified. They didn't believe that they were the problem. And I think, you know, it's little nudges like this that illustrate to us how we can maybe move the conversation towards a better line. I, I definitely know that Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, talks about not wanting people to have permanent bans, but almost to try and use a platform like Twitter to educate people that they maybe were the problem at times. Wow. Chidera, so we will end with your wisdom and insights. I actually think that we're becoming a product of social media. I'm noticing it in the trends that are popping up in terms of the way that 
African-American verbal expression is something that a lot of TikTok people are using and they're white people. And it's so weird to see how we pick up a lot of our personality and our opinions and what we think we should look like based on social media. And I'm seeing a very worrying future where we forget that the person we are offline is way more valuable and way more precious than the person we are online. And the pressure exists for everybody to perform mm. a very high functioning, happy, I guess politically nuanced to an extent version of yourself so that you can you know, be accepted and fit in. But ultimately, with the direction things are moving, I just hope people remember that activism begins at home. Mm. And no matter how much social media moves in the direction of social justice, and like when George Floyd died and everyone uploaded the black square and gave up two weeks later, it goes to show that the real activism is your relationship with yourself mm. and then those closest to you and what sacrifices you're willing to make in order to contribute to the change that you deep down do want to see. And most of those sacrifices will be uncomfortable and inconvenient, but the revolution was never meant to be comfortable or convenient. Mm. And the revolution was never meant to be marketable either. Yeah. And so that goes for everybody, whether you're a social media influencer, whether you work at these platforms, you have to know that the revolution is not going to be something that will go down everyone's throats as easily and you have to be prepared for some losses because there'll be greater gain and that gain will be us actually generating and accessing empathy through understanding each yeah. other so I strongly believe it can be done and if we are going to be products of social media let's learn the behavior that encourages us to be introspective and to be gentle because yeah. we're all just fragile souls at the end of the day and to be kind <laughs> Thank you so much, Julian, Bruce, Chidera. It's been an absolute pleasure having the three of you participate in our unsocial media conversation. Um, look forward to continuing this discussion. And thank you all so much for watching. I hope you've taken as much from it as I have. Bye.